Father, you are so generous to us and have given us beyond measure. You've given us life itself, and you've given us what we need when we squandered that life in sin. You've given us our salvation. You've given us eternal life, new life in Christ, a life that will never end, a life that has hope for a future where at your right hand is joy. Lord, we long for that day, but until then, would you make us generous with our lives? As you have been generous to us, may we be generous to others and give with cheerful hearts unto you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 7. We'll begin reading in verse 13 today. Matthew 7, verse 13. This is God's word. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that as we've seen in Psalm 119 this morning, your, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So would you illumine our path today and our feet? Show us the way in which we're to go. Reveal our hearts, Lord. Um, that tends to be the darkest place for us. We don't see objectively, we don't see clearly, and, and we need your help, the, the work by your spirit, through your word, that we might see our own hearts. Uh, Lord, We also pray, according to Psalm 119, that you would show us wonderful things from your law. Let us also see not only the depths of our despair, but the glories of the gospel, the great hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, that he has taken all the curses and has bestowed on us all the blessings. Would you encourage us today by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Believe it or not, we're coming toward the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Depending on how your Bible's laid out, you might be able to see that, that we're getting close. Uh, I looked back and saw that we started the Sermon on the Mount back in May. And if, you, um, if you've noticed, we could have spent much longer on it. There are places where I felt like we went too, a little too fast, and maybe you thought we went too slow. But there's just so much here for us to consider, for us to chew on, for us to think about. And so we are coming toward the end. And as uh, any good sermon comes to its end, uh, Jesus now moves to application. 
I mentioned this morning in Sunday school, we, we, we completed Sunday school today. I'm, I'm making that clear. Zach has already done so, but just in case so no one shows up next Sunday, we, we completed Sunday school today, so there's no Sunday school next week. But in the course of the past six weeks, we've looked at the, the idea of corporate worship. And one of the things in, within the elements of our order of worship uh, is the preached word. And so we talked about the role of God's word, not just in preaching, uh, but in reading and its use throughout the service. And as we looked at the, the, the word used in, in corporate worship, we considered 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says that he's to dedicate himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting, and to teaching. And so we kind of broke down those three things. And under the, the topic of exhorting, we talked about this idea of application that uh, quoted John Brodus, without a summons, there's no sermon, the idea that, that we are to be exhorted to respond, that there's a choice to be made, that there's an action to follow. And sometimes that is explicitly made by the preacher. Oftentimes, the Spirit does this through His Word in ways the preacher can't even imagine, for which I am ever so thankful. And as I mentioned this morning, one of the reasons why I'm reluctant to give too many things of application, because normally the application is just what's going on, you know, in my life, whether it's my own struggles or, or walking with other people. But there are a million ways in which the Word can be applied. And so thankfully, the Spirit does that for all of us. That's one of the supernatural works that's going on now, even while I preach the Word, is that the Spirit's at work in all who believe to to prick your heart, to show you where you might need to, to change, to respond. And so there is a summons, there's a call to action, there is application. And that is what Jesus is beginning to move into. And we'll see this continue in the following text as well. As we know, Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom of heaven, describing what it is, it's unfolding, what it looks like for people to enter into it, and also what it looks like for people to reject the kingdom. And now he presents a moment in which a decision is made uh, as we approach this, the end of the sermon. What is clear from his teaching is that there are really only two ways to live. Uh, In this text, it's described as two paths or two gates, the gate that leads to each path. It's marked by two different kinds of teachers. There are only two destinations, two options, and there are two types of foundation for the building, which we'll see in the following text. Now, for us in the modern-day West, we don't like this. And I speak very generally here. In this room, those of us who are followers of Christ, that may not be us necessarily, but it's certainly in our culture and it affects us. But the culture abroad doesn't like this. We live in a, in a pluralistic society. Many want to believe that there are many ways to God. Uh, we, we hesitate to say something like there is only one way, there is only one true way. We feel reluctance to do so in such a society. Our society is also marked by syncretism in which we, we don't like to pick one way. We like to merge and blend and mix stuff together, and there's a lot of that that goes on in our culture as well. Our society is also marked by relativism. It holds that there are no absolutes, in essence, that everyone and everything makes up their own truth. And we hear this being taught and promulgated in our culture. But the teachings of Jesus refute all of these notions. There is only one true way. He makes this clear in John fourteen six: I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are two paths, but there is only one way that leads to the Father. There is, by implication, if you are not on the way that leads to the Father, you are on the other path. There is only one way that is in accordance to the truth. 
In the early church, believers were not known as Christians until later in the first century at Antioch. And even then, when the term was used, it was used as an insult. It wasn't an acceptable term. It was used as a slur. And before this, though, followers of Christ were known as members of the way. That was what uh, Christianity was called in its early day, the way. We see this in the biography of Paul before when he was still Saul and before his conversion. In Acts 9, it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for him letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any, any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so we understand this moniker or nickname for Christians came from Jesus' own teaching. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We see this also in John 10 where he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The writer of Hebrews captures this in Hebrews 10. By the new and living way, which we read this morning, that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And Peter in his sermon in Acts 4 said, And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Jesus is this new and living way, the only way by which we can be saved and the only way to the Father. And so a choice is set before all who would hear his sermon that day and for all of us who would hear it today. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it by, are, by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. In these two verses, we see four elements. There are two gates, two paths, two groups of travelers, and two destinations, and they all take one way or the other. The two gates are the narrow and the wide gates, as are the paths. They describe the entrance to either path, and so the command that we have here by Jesus is to enter through the narrow gate, which by implication is faith in Christ. And so we could therefore divide who's on the narrow path and who's on the wide path, those who are trusting in Christ and those who are not. The gate is only described as narrow, but later we see the path is described as hard. And so focusing then on its description as narrow, we see that there are restrictions. There's not just a, uh, it's not a wide gate. There are specific ways to enter through it, specific guidelines or boundaries. And it's what we saw in John 10, where Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. John the Baptist made this clear in his preaching uh, when he said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wide gate, on the other hand, leads to the broad way. It doesn't seem to have any restrictions. It seems to be easy to go through, even easy to find. You can bring whatever you want when you go through it. There are no restrictions, so you can bring whatever baggage you you wish to carry. You can bring your preferences. You can bring your sins. You can bring whatever ideas, notions, thoughts, beliefs, whatever, through this gate. There are really no restrictions. And if you don't enter by the narrow gate, the implication is you have entered through the wide gate because there are only two options, one or the other. You've either entered by Christ, the door, into the narrow gate, or you are on the wide path. That's the two paths, narrow and wide as well. But narrow is described as hard. The path is difficult. Uh, It is not an easy or leisurely journey upon this path. 
We know this from Jesus' own words, in the world you will have tribulation, he said to his disciples. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Part of the beauty in the warning that the path is hard is that there's also the promise. In this case, that Jesus has overcome the world. Or we might look to his, his promise that he, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The paradox of the gospel message that hopefully as we grow in grace becomes less paradoxical to us. But it is a paradox that the way up is down. The way to saving our life is giving up our life. The way to gain is found in losing. The hardship of the narrow path is not minimized, but points us rather to the source of our salvation, the source of our strength in the journey, our hope and our peace, because Jesus has promised as well never to leave us nor forsake us. The journey is hard. The path is hard, but he is with us on the hard path. He's with us on the hard journey. The wide path is described as easy, just as the wide gate that opens up to it. It allows for what may appear as freedom or autonomy, and after all, isn't this what people want? We all want freedom and autonomy. This is found from our very early days as children, uh, even infants, uh, craving for the will to command and control our world. And if you've ever had a child or babysat a child or worked in the nursery, you understand how this works. Children have no problem, even in infancy, letting you know that they wish to control the world. Everyone wants to rule the world, and we continue in this pattern the rest of our lives, although we may become a little less or a little more subtle about it. But what we find when we seek to rule the world by our own cravings is not freedom, but enslavement. See, the wide path is the way of sin, and with it comes all the fruits of sin. The path allows for ease, but it brings ruin. It seems pleasant at first, but proves hopeless. Relativism in our own age proves this again and again, even in our current history, that those who gain power or wish to gain power, once they do, want to cancel those who disagree with them. Those who claim tolerance prove to be the most intolerant among us. And suddenly and without warning, when the tables are turned, one side devours the other into oblivion. The ones so quick to cancel find themselves canceled. And this is proven out not just in our own day, but in history we can look at the great empires who fell, so many of them, not because of great powers without but from within, as they devoured one another in a desire to rule their own little world. The two groups of people that we see on each path are described as the many and the few. It is the few who find the narrow gate, while it is the many who go through the wide gate. And while this is hard for us to hear, we wish it was the other way, this ought to compel us to share our faith, to declare the hope that we have. We don't know who God has drawn to himself or will draw to himself in salvation. And so we must be faithful to call others to the narrow gate, to the door to enter in through Christ. And in doing so, we don't deny the hardship of the path. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but it was popular in my growing up years to give an evangelistic call that, that God was, had, you know, lo- God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life and trust Jesus and all your problems will go away or something of that 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 flavor and it was uh it was the undoing of many to discover that life didn't become magically easier easier upon trusting jesus in fact the opposite was found by any who truly followed jesus and that life became more challenging and more difficult because he promised that 
And so the way that is easy is that leads to destruction, while the way that is difficult is, is we're calling people to a difficult path. We're not to minimize that. But rather, we're to point people to the glory of Christ and to the glory of the hope that awaits us, that we're not to live life and go through difficulties, not that we fake it, we can be honest about our struggles, but at the same time, we ought to show that we have hope, that we have joy, that there is something that we have our eyes fixed on, that though these circumstances stink, it's those these circumstances are difficult and painful. We have a hope beyond this world, and our eyes are fixed on that, and we have a peace that passes understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so rather than uh, denying the hardship of the path, we declare in our living out of our faith the glory of Christ and the glory that awaits us. So we do not lose heart, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Finally, there are two destinations at the end of either path. The narrow gate leads to life, while the wide gate leads to destruction. And... Little explanation is needed for others. It's a stark contrast between two very definite or certain results. Near the end of his life, Moses, as the people of Israel were preparing to enter the promised land, Moses spoke to them and he said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of your days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. From the time in the garden until our own day, the choice given to humankind has always been either to hear, to believe, and to obey in order to find life or to go your own way, which leads to death. And Jesus makes the same point clear in this passage, that we all have a choice to hear, to believe and to obey that we might live by faith in Christ. Otherwise, we will journey on the easy path to destruction. That's the choice that Jesus was putting before his hearers in the Sermon on the Mount. After describing the kingdom, it all comes down to this. Will you listen to the claims of Christ? Will you receive and believe what he says, who he says he is, what he said he's done for us, or will you reject him? Those are the two ways. Those are the two options that exist before them and before us today. As part of the one true way, there is also a distinction as to what is taught in those who teach. And in verses 15 to 20, Jesus warns us against false prophets who will come among believers and cause harm. Not who might come, uh, but who will come. There's a certainty to this. And we see this not only here in the words of Jesus, but in other passages in the New Testament as well. Just as there are two gates, two paths, two groups of people, and two destinations, so there are also two types of prophets or teachers that emerge. So the idea of false prophets is one that most of us are, are still familiar enough with having, you know, we finished Jeremiah in the spring, you know, before we started Matthew. It wasn't that long ago. This time last year we were in Jeremiah, so maybe you remember that far back. But, yeah, they were kind of an issue, weren't they, the false prophets? 
they had they had some they, they stirred up some problems, and it wasn't just during Jeremiah's day. We see this throughout the Old Testament that the false prophets were those who sought to lead God's people astray. And while the category of prophets is certainly unique, we see in other passages that the, the term used with, between false teachers and false prophets it becomes false teachers in the New Testament in the epistles. And so I'm going to use those terms synonymously. It, it would be those who who represent God to man, those who speak or explain his word, which is what teachers do. Um, What's important to understand, and what I'm trying to make clear here, is that at the outset, Jesus is warning against those, not those who would simply call themselves prophets, because few do that in our day, but really those who would represent to us any instruction on matters of faith. So this would be, in our day, because of our technology and so forth, this would be a myriad of voices in our own lives because there are many voices speaking into our lives that are attempting to instruct us about matters of faith, including some who don't even profess faith, but they still want to instruct us about matters of faith. And so what he's saying here is there's a way that you need to be discerning to know those who who, who are teaching or prophesying, explaining what is true and those who are false. And he makes it very easy for us to understand understand using these metaphors of good and bad fruit. And so I would include not only pastors and teachers in this list, but I would include authors, professors, bloggers and podcasters, filmmakers, musicians, and other artists. Because today, Christians are influenced by all of these voices. And so when it comes to any of these mediums, particularly those that are attempting to communicate something to us from a Christian perspective, we need to be particularly discerning. And the reason why this broader group I think is helpful for us to think about is that we, we can't help but be influenced by this. Uh, we, we see this in so many realms, and I won't go into specific examples other than to say uh, Christian music has been one of those that has, that has left many Christians disappointed, over the, at least in my generation, over the past 20 or 30 years, that those who once sang of the glory of Christ and sang orthodox uh, verses have now deconstructed from the faith. And so, you know, we need some discernment when it comes to listening to even what would come through music into our ears. So I'm suggesting that we apply these tests not simply to, to the one who stands in the pulpit, although it must apply to the one who stands in the pulpit, but those when we go to conferences, the podcasts we listen to, uh, the other things, the books we read, and the other things we take in. Furthermore, I also want us, and this is where we'll finish, is I want to suggest that we need to apply the same tests and standards to ourselves. In fact, I think it starts with applying these tests to ourselves first. But first, before we get there, look in verse 15. We see the word beware. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. We may not use the word beware very much in our everyday vernacular, but we all know what it means. We all understand it is a word of warning. It is a warning. uh, It's a stark word of warning. Uh, Beware. Be wary of those who would do what he describes here, that they would appear as sheep, but inside are ravenous wolves. In other words, be on the lookout. Don't let your guard down. Be ready, because it's not a matter of if these these wolves are going to show up, but when these wolves show up. Be on guard. Be alert. And the alertness is not just to our own preferences or to our own whims or to our own preferences, but 
according to Scripture, is the message that is being proclaimed, that is being taught, that is being spoken of, being sung of, being portrayed on the screen, is the message consistent with Scripture. God's revealed will as communicated through his written word. You may remember again our study through the book of Jeremiah. This is what God, this is the point he was driving home when God said to them, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you, and to everyone who stubbornly follows his own art. There's language from our own day. They say, no disaster shall come upon you. So Jeremiah was warning, giving the voice of the Lord to the people to beware of those who would do that. Despise the word of the Lord. Tell the people, follow your own heart. No disaster is going to fall, fall upon you. There are many ways to God. Just be true to yourself, those messages. I mean, all the way back in Jeremiah's day, people were being warned against this. In Second Peter chapter 2. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." Paul, in the book of Acts, when he was visiting the church at Ephesus, spoke to the elders there, and he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so the warning in all of these cases is not just set aside a few people to be discerners, but all of you be discerning. All of you beware. Every one of us should be on guard and should listen and should discern who it is that is speaking truth And who is speaking error? We all must be students of the word that we might know this. Because the false teachers can and do emerge. He doesn't say if, but he says when. They're going to come. Be on guard. They will appear as sheep. They won't look like wolves. You won't know them at first. You'll think they're one of the good guys. That's why he uses the metaphors of good and bad fruit. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. All of us are instructed to study and know God's word that we might ask questions and discern. Don't simply trust. Trust but verify. Those of you old enough to remember that, that Russian proverb made popular by Ronald Reagan during his presidency when he was discussing nuclear disarmament with the Russians. Trust but verify. I'm not trying to get political here. He was just historically the one who made it well known. But I'm just saying, I think that's actually a good pattern to follow. Because what, I'm, what, what, what Jesus is saying here and what I'm exhorting us to do today is not to distrust our leaders. I don't want you to distrust me as your pastor. I want to build trust. Trust but verify. Trust, but be discerning. 
All of us should verify what we hear taught or read or listened to in other contexts, just like the Bereans in Acts 17. They received the word with all eagerness, trust, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, but verify. That's the pattern that we see there. And so this is how we should, should come across. We're not to be hypercritics. We're not to go around acting like we know it all and have all the answers. Uh, there is a sense of trust. But when we see the bad fruit, we need to understand what it is and what it means. And so we must beware because there are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. We can be sure of that. Again, Jesus and the apostles both taught this. They have the appearance of knowing and loving God, but they are dangerous. Maybe the appearance is in their education. Maybe it's in their credentials. Maybe it's in their popularity or their charm. Maybe it's in the position they hold or the power that they hold. Or maybe it could be just their skills and the fact that they're persuasive. But they are able to get in and they are able to do damage. Do not be deceived. Do not be fooled. Wolves want only one thing. They want to devour. And this devouring may come via outright attacks against the gospel, suggesting Jesus isn't who he said he is. That's what Peter mentions in uh, his denying the master. It may look like that. It may be more subtle, however. It may, be, it may come through the lessening of the commands of Scripture, changing them ever so slightly. Did God really say? Even more subtly, they may misuse God's commands to get what they want. We saw an evidence of this, and I've used this example recently, but I'm going to use it again because it makes it really clear. The governor of the state of California installed billboards that said, need an abortion, California is ready to help. And then below that on the billboards, he put, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these, Mark 12, 31. Now, I'm sure that there were some people who that made, may, 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 may have made feel good, but it neglected something you know, really kind of obvious. There is no greater commandment than these. They left out the first part. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. An obvious misuse. Because if we know God and love him with all our heart, heart, mind, and strength, then we know that he has said, I have fearfully and wonderfully made you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. Do not murder. You see, the devouring that wolves do can be obvious at times, and it can be not so obvious at times. And so we must examine and think through everything that's being said. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. Now, the discernment is not just about what they're teaching or what they're writing and what they're saying. The discernment extends to their very lives. That is, do they live in accordance with what they teach, or are they hypocrites? Do they say one thing and do another? More importantly, do they live in accordance with what Christ teaches, or do they proclaim and live something else? You see, when we observe the bad fruit, it should serve as a warning. And what does bad fruit look like? Well, Galatians 5, for one, tells us, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. If we could just stop at those, right? 
Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. I mean, those, those don't hit home, do they? But wait, there's more. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We can go to the book of Ephesians in chapters 4 and 5, and we see there uh, an extension of the same types of descriptions. Uh, what do ravenous wolves look like? They, they lie. They're full of anger. They use crude or corrupting talk. They're full of bitterness, wrath, slander, malice, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And I'm not saying here that our leaders are ever perfect. We know better than that. Spend some time with me and you will find that out. Or ask my wife. We are not perfect, but we're talking about consistent fruit that is born in the lives of those whom we would listen to. What is the fruit on the tree? Additionally, the fruit of their disciples, I think, should also be considered. Call this secondary fruit, but I think it's worthwhile to consider. You know, sometimes we, we hear someone that's good to listen to. They're a great orator, but their church is full of corruption or their, uh, their life is full of, of a mess or whatever. We need, to, we need to think about the effect of their teaching as well, not just that they speak really well or speak really clearly or write really clearly. What is the fruit in the life is the ripple effect of how it follows out? What are their followers like? What fruit do we see among them? And again, we could use those previous lists that we saw in Galatians and Ephesians as ways to measure for the fruit. Instead, what should we look for? Well, we could go back to Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're looking for. That was the contrast that was given there. But we could also distill it in this this list. Those who uphold the gospel and the truth of God's word. Those who speak the truth in love. Those who do honest work. Those who build others up with their words. Those who show kindness and forgive. Those who give thanks to God in all things. That's another one of those lists that's just distilled down for us. That is, the evidences of a healthy tree are what we're looking for. Healthy fruit. But here's where I want us to land. I don't want us just to think of this as we're, that, that our job is simply that of gatekeepers. That we're only discerners of other people's actions, of other people's teaching. Because if we do that, I think we become proud and we become puffed up. What about us? What about the fruit in our lives? What about our own hearts? What about our own circles, our, our, own, our own, own little worlds? I'm not talking about how we think of ourselves or how we feel about ourselves, but what actual fruit do we see? Are others built up and encouraged around us? Or do people feel put down and discouraged? Do we see a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace? Or do we see discord and conflict in our relationships? Do we experience gratefulness from others for how we speak and how we act? Or do people avoid us? Do people seem annoyed by us or even wounded by us? 
Do we witness God being glorified in our relationships? Or is his name just something that's tacked on to what we do? We might benefit from asking others to help us assess ourselves because we're not particularly good at seeing ourselves. None of us are objective. All of us have blind spots, right? But what if someone installed a hidden camera? This is my, one of my biggest fears in life. What if someone installed a hidden camera in my home, in my car, or in my workplace? What would they see? If we got to watch the tape back from the last 24 hours, someone secretly recorded us. Yeah. Because what we would see is not just the words that we spoke. It wouldn't be like reading a transcript. We would hear the tone. We'd see the eye rolls. We'd witness the use of sarcasm and the expressions of harshness. We'd, 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 we'd see the, the manipulation and the vindictiveness and contempt and bitterness and envy and strife and lust and coveting and crude talk and on and on and on. None of us would want to see it, but what if? What if? You see, we need to start here with our own hearts because our spiritual neediness did not evaporate the day that we were saved. Legally, yes, on the cross, our atonement was made and we were justified, yes. But our spiritual neediness, as long as we are in these earthly, fleshly bodies, we are still spiritually needy. Go read Romans 7. Uh, Paul makes that uh, abundantly clear there. We need to grow. We need transformation through sanctification. We have fallen short. We will fall short again today. We will fall short again tomorrow and the day after that. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has died for our innumerable sins. This is why we don't lose heart. This is why we have hope even though we know we're a mess. This is why we can go back and look at the tape. And what I mean by that is not literally having somebody secretly tape us, but ask other people, consider what other people have to say about your life. Is, is, is your life, is there fruit? Are people built up around you or do they feel torn down around you? Jesus has died for all of our sins. We don't lose heart. He's granted us his righteousness as we enter by faith through him, through the door, into the narrow way that is Christ. And through faith in him, the fruit that we're now able to bear is the fruit of his spirit within us. It's not even our doing. We don't even get the credit for it. We don't accomplish even that. His spirit bears that fruit in our lives. You see, an element, an element of the hope of the gospel is that our story isn't over. No matter how we treated our spouse this morning or spoke to our kids or kids, how you spoke to your parents this morning, no matter the exchange that we had with a coworker or the contempt we felt for a neighbor, the mercies of God are new every morning. We can be forgiven. We can be cleansed. We can start afresh. It's hard. We must humble ourselves. But remember, Jesus said, the path is hard. It's not the easy way. And yet the fruit that is born in our lives as we walk the narrow path, the fruit that is born in the lives of others around us is good and sweet, is God-honoring and life-giving, is eternal and a great reward for us. And so, yes, may we discern truth from error, good fruit from bad fruit, But let's begin in our own hearts and then in those that we would listen to and those who would influence us. 
And as we do so, may we stay rooted in Christ, who said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is that, he, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, just as we hear the words of Jesus right now, apart from you, we can do nothing. Keep us rooted in the vine, Lord. May we not attempt, whether it's discerning good fruit in the lives of others or discerning the fruit in our own lives, may we not attempt this on our own. But may we abide in Jesus. Lord, in so doing, we ask that Although it's hard, you would reveal to us in our hearts where we need to grow, where we need to confess, where we need to repent, where we need to change. This is a work only your spirit can do, and we ask for you to do this hard work. Lord, because our desire is to continue and to make it. We want to persevere. We want to continue to the end. We want to arrive safely home, and we are encouraged and blessed that the promise is you will carry us there. But we still have these eyes that see what's in front of us and we know it's a hard path. And there are days that we want to give up. There are moments that we want to quit. There are are times, Lord, when we cannot even see to move forward. May we abide in Christ. And may Christ abide in us. That you would carry us on this long, difficult, narrow path. We pray this for your glory. We pray this in hope, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.